HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today I welcome you, especially um, those of you who tuned in, it's my 50th show, and what a sweet show it is, or will be, we're talking about chocolate. And today's show is sponsored by White Oak Pastures. White Oak Pastures cattle are raised in a manner that has stood the test of time. It begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, and fertile coastal soil. The cattle are allowed to roam the pastures and graze freely on sweet native grasses all of their lives. White Oak Pastures, all natural grass-fed beef, has been available in all of the Whole Foods stores in the Mid-Atlantic States. We hope that you'll support their program through your purchase of our beef through one of these Whole Foods stores. For more information, go to www.whiteoakpastures.com. Now, as I mentioned, it's a sweet show, my 50th show, and uh, I figured it's also just about Valentine's Day, and our thoughts start to turn to gifts for people we love and chocolate bounces out, right, in my, in my mind. That's the one thing that everyone loves, and I think I... It is, has been called the food of the gods and, and a divine obsession. And indeed, chocolate is, it, it, it just brings something about in certain people. And they say women uh, during different hormonal shifts have a craving for chocolate. There's something in chocolate that they love. Other people have called it an aphrodisiac. We're going to find all about, about all about that uh, from my guest, Alexandra Leaf. We want to know where the idea of giving chocolates for Valentine's Day came from, too, because that just didn't happen automatically. Somebody had to start that one. It's, you know, for chocolate being one of the most popular foods in the world, it really has a rather elusive history. We all enjoy it, but most of us don't know where it comes from, how it started. Hopefully, Alexandra will be able to fill us in on that. Alexandra is a culinary historian and an award-winning cookbook author. She's been involved with the Chocolate Show, New York City's chocolate, annual chocolate extravaganza, since its founding in 1997. As a chocolate educator, she travels the country lecturing on the history, manufacture, and appreciation of fine chocolate. And Alexandra gives chocolate tours, and you can find out about her tours at chocolatetoursnyc.com. She also leads uh, tasting classes 
at the Institute of Culinary Education and the 92nd Street Y. And she's a frequent contributor to different newspapers and magazines like Astronomica and Country Living. And a good friend. It's nice to have a good friend who knows about chocolate. Welcome, Alexandra. Thanks, Linda. So tell me, where do you know where the idea of giving chocolate for Valentine's Day came from? Well, I always think of chocolate as the best-known food that nobody knows anything about. Huh, yes. And your comment that chocolate is elusive, or at least the history of chocolate is elusive, and, and that's true of so much food and, and, and so many food ways. It's often something that's just such an intrinsic part of culture. People fail to really ask the deep questions or actually do the homework to figure things out. Um, my birthday is Valentine's Day. I don't know whether you know oh, that. No, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, which is very funny, and I didn't. Well, even... this is even more of a coincidence. Well, then, wonderful. Yeah, okay. and and I have to say that I didn't like chocolate until I was in my twenties. So I understand my son when he says, "Oh, I don't like chocolate." My daughter loves chocolate, but um, I tend to think that the idea of giving chocolate on Valentine's Day comes somehow from this lingering notion that chocolate or cacao, um, that sort of more raw form of chocolate, um, was an aphrodisiac. Um, The book that I love best, because I think she's really done her homework, is The True History of Chocolate by Sophie Coe. Mm -hmm. And very early on, practically the first chapter, she just, you know, dismisses this idea that chocolate is an aphrodisiac. Oh, darn. The foods (laughs) that were unknown to the Europeans, in other words, the foods that came from the New World, from our part of the world here, and went back to Europe with, you know, during the age of exploration. Um, These were foods, of course, that the Europeans there had never seen before. Potatoes, corn, tomatoes. And so foods that were unknown tended to be viewed with great skepticism and often were just sort of thrown into this pile of, oh, an aphrodisiac. And, you know, perhaps because of the stimulating aspects, there is theobromine in it. Mm -hmm. That's the compound which, of course, is lethal to dogs. So everybody, if you are going to have chocolate around, be careful. Dogs will jump up on counters, um, grab chocolate, and get very sick from it. So watch out. Um, So that compound theobromine is very much like a caffeine you know, it's a stimulant. So well, and, perhaps, that actually, and that actually translates into food of the gods, theobromine. Yeah, I, 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 yeah that's right. I, like I, dieu, theo, dieu, ti, the, you know, mm-hmm. theo, di, dio. Yeah, exactly, the, the, the Latin um, roots. So, um, so I think that that's perhaps where the original um, sort of related to love or, you know, erotic in some way. The other thing is it could be the iconography. I mean, you you have these incredible paintings, um, French and Italian paintings of, you know, breakfast in the boudoir. And these people are, you know, in states of semi-dress. Uh, being served their their co- their their chocolate sipping the sipping morning. their chocolate right that's right, right. sipping chocolate well in now bed that and, so and I, what I failed to mention is your books you have two beautiful books and you um, relate the food world and the art world in your books um, you have um, Van Gogh's table and the Impressionist table both yeah. books that relate food and and art um, but the sipping of the chocolate so chocolate so basically we should we should I guess back up and. And talk about a timeline, really, where a lot of people attribute 
the first chocolate or, or the production of chocolate to the Mayans. But is that, I don't know if that's necessarily... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, chocolate consumption, so. um, you know, we can say is about 3,000 years old. Um, the, the native form was um, a sp- heavily spiced water-based beverage. Now, for us, you know, we've grown up in this more European uh, tradition, and it's always, um, you know, hot chocolate with some form of, you know, dairy. It's cream or or half and half milk, something like that. Um, But, of course, there were no cows in this part of the world until the Spaniards brought them. So these were water-based drinks, and people basically crushed up whatever they had on hand, which was vanilla. There were chilies. So this chili spiked stuff that people like today, it's mm-hmm. really as old as time. It's not a new <laughs> form new, of right. chocolate. Yeah. And um, so it was frothed. You know, it was be- you know, beaten up with, let's say, a, a whisk kind of um, instrument. That's the way the Spaniards um, uh, had it. But the original, original form was, was just this water-based drink of crushed stuff, which when you look at the accounts um, of, of, of the Spaniards um, writing about this, it's like, you know, food for pigs, disgusting stuff. You know, and of course the Spaniards with their, you know, big uh, beards and mustaches, you know, men then had a lot of facial hair mm-hmm. and certainly after the voyage, you know, hadn't been shaving. So they would get the um, the achiote, this orange mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, these ingredients that were all mixed up and it would be on their on their you know, beard and stuff. They and mustache must have not looked very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> but so they. So where do um, when and so when did it come that we added the sweetening to it, the sugar, and made it a, a palatable drink to European taste or Western culture taste? Well, when chocolate was embraced by the Europeans and. Um, Really in the 1700s, it starts to become very popular. Although, you know, in the 1600s is when the beans start coming over with other products that that are being brought. But it didn't really take off. Of course, you know, what Europeans were drinking then, tea was well known and and understood. And people did sweeten it with sugar um, or honey. Of course, sugar then was viewed in a medicinal way. was very expensive, mm-hmm. um, and, and coffee also would be sweetened. So you had a, a bitter-tasting drink that could sort of be, be, be brought into this drink um, lexicon, if you will. So, so for the Europeans, that was not too difficult um, to understand how to use it because the beans were roasted in the same way that coffee beans are roasted, so there was something similar enough for Europeans too, and if I can just make make make, make a comment also that um, you know in in Spain and um, which was largely Catholic at the time, um, because cacao was drunk and not eaten, mm-hmm. that it was not considered. You didn't break the fast if you were drinking chocolate. Ah, so it so really took off right. in Spain. Yes, and then later in Italy and France. And then the Dutch got a hold of it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, and the famous Dutching yeah. process. Which um, is is making the, the cocoa from it, deriving the cocoa from the bean. Well, first of all, a lot of people yeah, don't know how, how, how cocoa is, how cacao, how chocolate is gotten. So talk a little about that. I mean, there we have, I, I did post a picture. Hopefully people will be able to see it on the, on the website today. Um, of these beautiful, huge pods growing on trees. 
Where does the majority of, of cocoa yeah, grow? Yeah, well, they're absolutely fantastic looking. I was so excited after looking at images for a very long time of these pods to actually walk among cacao trees and see them there. Where? Well, Where cacao, did you Yeah, cacao is an equatorial plant that thrives 20 degrees approximately north and south of the equator. So it's really a band around the world. And we're starting to see more and more cacao being planted in areas <clears throat> where cacao, where there has not been a tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there is a great demand. Um, people are concerned about a possible shortage in the future of cacao. Um, but I happen to be in Belize. I was invited by the company Green and Blacks to go look at um, a cacao collective there in Punta Gorda. Um, and so the cacao tree is basically producing these pods on a year-round basis. But there are two principal crops, roughly six months apart. Um, because, of course, we have to think of this as a business, and you're not going to, you know, and hopefully you're in pursuit of ripe pods. I mean, the really, really large industrial companies just go out there and they hack down all the pods, whether they're ripe or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, a fruit, fruit tastes better, and cacao really is a fruit, uh, tastes better when it's allowed to fully ripen. Um, so in an ideal world, um, your pod is ripe, and there's a tremendous diversity of color in cacao pods, from a yellow to a, a pale orange to a deep, deep orange to even um, uh, uh, almost um, a burgundy, deep burgundy mm-hmm. with like a lot of red, red notes deep red, in it. Right. Yes, and according to the varietal, um, you know, the, the, the color will be different. Um, or some of the pods are really deeply crenellated. So you've got these like long ridges down down the, the sides. Um, some are smooth. There are three principal types and then lots of kind of like sub varietals and um, people may be aware that Mars and Hershey's have been doing a tremendous amount of experimentation now because what what everyone is looking for in a cacao tree is disease resistance being a big producer and being a flavorful varietal Mm -hmm. and at first what the large companies were doing was experimenting with genetics only to get something that was very disease resistant but then you had flavor that was completely mediocre then they would have to roast the heck out of the beans to get any flavor and then add a lot of vanilla to give it flavor now what they're really looking at is as i said before something that's a wonderful balance where you are getting good flavor and you're getting disease resistance because well, now, but that's a question I have too. Is are all the the beans? I mean, the beans are in the pod, and then they're roasted. Are they all? And then they all go through a fermentation process. Well, what first happens is the beans. I mean, the pods. Hopefully, they're ripe. Hmm. Are harvested. Okay. Then they're opened carefully because when you open them with a the machete, you don't want to cut into the bean because you're injuring it. All right. So you. So the beans are removed. They're covered with this white mucilaginous substance, which is which. Actually, vinegar can be made from. There are beers that are made from that um, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the beans are then collected up, and again, in an ideal situation, they're put into large wooden fermentation boxes. And the fermentation can go on for you know three days, four days, five, up to about a week, um, depending on the amount of beans. Um, depending, some varietals will. Um, ferment faster. So that fermentation 
is really the beginning of the development of flavor. You know, if you were to just take one of those beans out and suck on it, well, it'll be delicious in that kind of like lychee sense because what you're tasting is the white on the outside. Mm -hmm. If you were to bite into the bean, first of all, you wouldn't taste chocolate at all and you would taste something that's very bitter because the alkaloid content is very high at that point. Yeah. So basically, during all these processes, so we've had the, the fermentation process and then the beans need to be dried and they need to be dried really well. So they're left out. Um, I mean, it can be in a very primitive form, drying on plastic tarp on someone's little terrace. Um, or it's a, or it can be done on patios and sometimes on raised, very often on raised surfaces. Um, and maybe um, in an area where those drying racks can be pushed underneath, you know, some sheltered area because you're contending with maybe a rainy season. Um, so you want, you want maximum amount of drying and you also don't want the beans baking in the sun when the sun is very, very harsh because mm-hmm. you want it. It's, it's, you know, like anything, it, you, you just have to do things slowly and, and carefully. Then, well, we'll, we'll get to uh, talking about the grinding and the cocoa butter and the types of chocolates, which, and then, of course, the edible kind that we can uh, chew into. But first, we're going to take a short break, and I'm going to, I want to leave people with a question. You talked about Hershey's and Mars experimenting with a lot of types of chocolate, and Hershey's well should because they produce so much chocolate a little question a little quiz question before we go to a break and i'll let people think about it and that's how many hershey's kisses are manufactured on an average day at the hershey chocolate factory and then we'll take a little break and come back and give you the answer so stay tuned love and happiness Something that can make you do wrong, make you do right. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune into the food scene Tuesdays at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel, photo editor of Edible Brooklyn and Edible Manhattan magazines, he'll further explore the amalgamation of food and art by talking to artists from a multitude of media. Guests will range from photographers, food stylists, interior architects for restaurants, industrial designers, all the players that make you want to eat with your eyes. Get ready to feast your ears every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. 
Okay, and we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I left you with a question. How many Hershey's Kisses are manufactured on an average day at the Hershey's factory? Is it 10 million? Is it 50 million? Believe it or not, it's 80 million. 80 million Hershey's Kisses on an average day. That's a lot of chocolate. That's a lot of Hershey Kisses. All right, now, and the quality is different in chocolates, we know. And so finally, we've, we've got these beans, and we grind them up in these big machines. And how do we get to the chocolate bar? Well, the really fine, most expensive best chocolate, and best, it's very subjective, but best means a chocolate whose ingredients start with cocoa beans, not sugar. Mm. Cocoa beans, some form of cocoa beans, chocolate liquor means ground beans, sugar. Um, You do want additional cocoa butter. Um, It just makes a richer bar. And um, the whole artisan movement here in this country um, is actually shying away from adding vanilla. Hmm. Not flavor. They don't want to artificially That's flavor right. the the, yep. the actual chocolate. Yep. Some are doing it. Some aren't. Actually, some are trying to really take a very minimal appro- approach, and um, aren't even adding additional cocoa butter. But you do get a more luxurious uh, mouth. And the cocoa butter being, that's the, what, what is the, explain what the cocoa well, butter is. Yeah, cocoa butter is basically a byproduct of the manufacturing, of the processing of, of chocolate, of cocoa beans. So in other words, I mean, it depends what you're going to do with them. If you're one of these bean-to-bar artisan makers, you're just going to grind and grind and grind until you get something that's very, very smooth. Conching is the process. Right. And you're going to stop there. But... If you're a very large company that's interested in selling cocoa butter to the cosmetics industry, which Mm -hmm. pays a premium for it, you're going to have to process that bean all the way through. So essentially, you're separating the liquid, the fat, from the solid, and then you're left with cocoa cocoa powder. Mm -hmm. So cocoa powder is not part of chocolate making. If you're making chocolate for you know for eating bars, bars, it's if you are processing it for the purpose of obtaining cocoa butter. So you could sell that cocoa butter to a chocolate company that needs that extra cocoa butter because it's making this very luxurious rich, or then you sell it elsewhere. And it's amazing because you can, uh, when you see the beans, um, well, let's see, when they're first dried, do you sense, like with coffee beans, do you sense any oiliness in them? Not at all, Mm -hmm. not at all. Um, They're very, very hard, actually. Um, After the drying... There isn't. There's a slight cocoa dimension to the, to them. Roast them, then you're getting some more. But every step along the way is bringing out a more, um, let's say, the other profiles, the essence, the chocolate essence, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah. today on today's market, we see, and we'll talk about that. The art, the artisanal. We're back to you know the, the finer chocolate making and artisanal movements. And I know a lot of people are confused. They look at chocolate on the shelves and they see 70%, 60%, you know, and then they taste it and their taste buds are often surprised. They think, oh, I'm going to get a very chocolatey, fine chocolate. I'll buy the the 70% bar. Mm. We'll talk about what the percentages are, are, what the percentages mean, and what how that dictates flavor. Yeah, I agree. It can be overwhelming, even for someone like myself who really knows the chocolate world. If I'm in Whole Foods and I walk by, can I periodically check? It's like, whoa! If I had to buy a, a bar of chocolate quickly, like any other shopper, and you're in, you know, trying to get in and out, look and you say, oh my gosh, where do I even start? 
Um, and well, what the percentage basically means is what is contained in that bar that is made exclusively from the bean. So in other words, a 70% bar, 70% of what's in that bar comes from the cocoa bean. The remaining 30% is sugar, lecithin, vanilla. I mean, vanilla is, mm-hmm. you know, 1% or something, 2%. You know, it's very, very small. Um, but that's really what it is. Um, you know, as we hear that dark chocolate is good for us and, you know, the darker the better. Um, we're, we're now seeing 100%, 99%. I think even the lint is doing a 90 or maybe it's only available in Europe. But we're seeing these ever higher percentages. Um, you know, what I'm actually very interested in, I'm not a big milk chocolate fan, although some milk chocolate is really good. Um, the term dark milk is not a contradiction in terms. It sounds oxymoronic. Um, Yeah, it's actually a dark chocolate that has milk solids in it. So you could have a 60% dark, and then you add some milk powder, Mm -hmm. and then so you're going to get a richer, a deeper tasting Well, more palatable, because if anyone's bitten into, you know, a 70%... Uh, chocolate bar, seventy percent cocoa bean chocolate bar. You find it's it's almost dry, and it's not as smooth a texture for a lot of people um, who aren't used to tasting chocolates. You know, it'll be like kind of like a bitter a bitter dryness. See, that really depends on the manufacturing. Mm. Um, the French, huh, they're very famous for fat cheeses, butters, um, their approach, and you really do see these national differences. There's definitely an Italian style of chocolate making. There's a Swiss style. There is a French style. The French add lots of extra cocoa butter, the artisanal, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, the more industrialized ones are, you know. So you get that smoothness and that, yes, and that yes, meltability. incredibly, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, a company like Pralu, P-R-A-L-U-S, that I really love, um, their 70% contains more cocoa butter than any other company. But you wouldn't know that because since cocoa butter is, you know, is part of a cocoa bean, the 70% does not reflect the additional cocoa butter. Hmm. Interesting. Right, because it's it's a it's a product of the cocoa bean. Uh-huh. Right? So you wouldn't know that unless you buy it or, you know, you read about it or you're listening to this show and So it's you know. really about the quality of the producer whether and you the get the style the, of the sm- producer, yes, flavor. and the quality of the beans. Um, yeah, there's so many variables and that's the I mean, you can definitely talk about terroir and chocolate. Mm. You will get different different flavor profiles. Well, we're the majority I was reading that the majority of um, the chocolate really is grown in West Africa, is that? Yeah, in the that Ivory that? Coast. The Ivory mm-hmm. Coast, huh, actually, is such a big producer that the five next company, countries put together don't even total. Don't even touch where they're Ivory where they Coast's are. production, that's right. Yeah. Ghana is another really big producer. Um, that, that, that whole part of West Africa. Interesting, um, yeah. Um, and and then, uh, but the but the largest manufacturers. I mean, is just about every country is manufacturing chocolate in their own, as you mentioned, in their own style. Mm-hmm. So they're 
it's it's a it's a big business. That's yeah. There's a yeah. lot of competition to yeah. uh, to supply that to people. Yeah, and and what's really exciting, there are more little guys who we don't even know about yet. I get together with some people. We call ourselves the Manhattan Chocolate Society, and we taste chocolate together, like a wine appreciation. But we're doing it with chocolate, and um, our members travel. And like one was at the San Francisco um, Fancy Food Show and talked to some small producers. So we will taste the chocolate and then we'll give our feedback. And these are people we haven't even heard of. They're not even ready to be selling their chocolates too publicly yet. They're there just to make contacts. And um, so like out of their garage, because you can, you can um, Chocolate Alchemy is a the, yeah. website yeah, where you can oh, get... Oh, Chocolate Alchemy. Interesting. Yeah, you yeah. can buy beans in a small quantity. You can get everything you need to make your own chocolate. It's like um, home brewing. You can home totally, chocolate making, that's right? right. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well, you mentioned yeah. wine and why um, wines and chocolates. People talk about chocolate notes in a wine, but there mm-hmm. are also certain wines that are best paired with chocolate too. Yep. I mean, it's it's become this you know this big um, gastronomic industry. You know, pairing different uh, different foods together. But champagne, you mentioned, is something that goes quite well with chocolate. Well, um, you, you def- the rule of thumb is that what you're drinking should be sweeter than your chocolate. Oh. And there are tannins in cocoa beans and, of course, tannins in, wine. well, especially red wine. Yeah. So what I, what I really like is um, to just look to the fortified dessert wine category. And I love Quadi. Andrew Quadi is a producer in, in Napa. And he loves chocolate and and. Almost all of his wines, whether it's a port style or it's an orange musket, they're beautiful. Um, I think that you have a better success because, well, the classic port, ruby, ruby port as opposed mm-hmm. to a tawny or something. I mean, a tawny might be okay. But, but um, you have better luck if what you're drinking is going to be a little bit sweeter. Interesting. I didn't yeah. see. I would not have. I would not have gone to the sweeter yeah. drinks with chocolate. I would have let the chocolate come through. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all what you like in the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Well, and to think that when Christopher Columbus first brought back cocoa beans, they basically disregarded them. That's right. Kind of th- tossed them aside. Right. Well, nobody yeah. knew what to do with them. They That's didn't right. know how to grind them. Yeah. Very interesting. That uh, it took a it took a few people and few. Um, uh, initiatives to uh, to bring it to bear. Uh, the other interesting thing that I think was that um, almonds, almonds are a, a big match with chocolate. That, I'm, I'm not sure how that came to be because almonds themselves have a lot of um, oil in them as well. Yeah. In fact, one of the reasons that the United States is very, that our USDA is interested in what's going on with cacao in the world is because we have a huge amount of almonds that we need to sell to uh-huh. confectionery. I mean, <laughs> a huge amount of our almonds leave the United States to go abroad to be in candy bars. Um, I don't really know how all of that started, but I mean, if you think of... Finding of, another of, use of for the almond. Of Janduya. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe. Right. Yeah, Janduya, right. Yeah, I mean, and when we think about Nutella, the mm-hmm. reason that... I mean, Nutella was born during the war when, when chocolate was scarce. So um, the hazelnut... Hazelnut was primarily right? Exactly, yeah, and so, you know, you grind those down again, the, the, the fat, and mm-hmm. so that's kind of how that happened. And so maybe there was just this notion of, hmm, nuts... Because certainly nuts were not being ground up. No, um, yeah. to be a part of. But yeah. but well, they, it's a great combination. Whoever decided yeah. to do it, it was yeah. wonderful. And then somebody had um, credited Cadbury with 
with um, promoting the chocolate for Valentine's Day. Um, but you were mentioning earlier before the show that it probably all started with the box. Right? Yeah, yeah, which was the Belgians who came up with the idea of selling chocolate, um, selling bonbons, you know, candies, because that's very different from an ex- a bar experience of chocolate. Because when once you had the industrialization of chocolate, you had, you know, chocolate being made by machinery mm-hmm. as opposed to the hand grinding and and that kind of thing. Um, but then this notion of selling the little individual bonbons in a in a box and then giving that that that's that's a, a present of food. Um, uh, well, it was late, a wonderful late nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, w- I would think um, yeah, um, be e- easily yeah. Um, you know, yeah. middle to to late nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and it persists today. It's, yes. it, it's a big business. I think the chocolate sellers probably do more business than that. You know, weeks time than they do for yeah. many of the months. Well, certainly summer months. Yeah, and sure. it's funny because Jacques Torres likes to talk about um, the difference in buying habits between men and women, and he'll have um, you know women that are you know week to ten days before Valentine's Day are very thoughtfully selecting the chocolates for their husbands, and then on the day of Valentine's Day, especially as it gets <laughs> later and later, these guys just rush in and like throw fifty dollars at the cashier, just ah, just you know putting it. They just want to get in and out very quickly. And then in Japan, something that's very interesting is that on Valentine's Day, women buy chocolate for men. And it could be a woman buying chocolate for her boss. Or a Japanese friend was saying that um, a woman might give chocolate to a perspective, a sort of a love interest. But so it's there. It's the, yeah. the whole the whole Valentine's theme yeah. is there. Well, whomever you are buying your chocolates for, I hope that you have a wonderful Valentine's Day. And um, I thank our listeners for, for listening in today and in celebrating my 50th show with me. And I think I'm going to treat myself to some chocolates later today. You've gotten it going. I'm Linda Palaccio. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest, Alexandra Leaf, on thank A Taste of the Past. And thank you to my producer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.